the water people drink in New York City is not filtered. It's coming straight from an ecosystem called the Catskill Mountains. Can you imagine the cost of uh, building from scratch a water treatment plant that would be replacing that natural ecosystem? That would be huge. So that's one example of how we're not accounting in our system very well, the service given to us by nature. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Today, I'm speaking with Basile Van Haaf. He is co-chair of the Convention on Biological Diversity's Open-Ended Working Group for a post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework. Basile has over 27 years of experience working in Canada's Environment Department, in addition to his current work as lead for Canada's CBD Focal Point. He was formerly Director General of Biodiversity for the Government of Canada and has served as chair of the CBD discussions on Indigenous knowledge and repatriation. He's also served as co-chair of the International Joint Commission on Great Lakes Water Quality and as director at the Meteorological Service of Canada. Basile, can you first of all tell me about your journey? How did you come to be the co-chair of the working group for the post-2020 global biodiversity framework via the Government of Canada? So, as, uh, as you said in the intro, I, I spent most of my career in the, in the federal government, in the government of Canada. I came to the uh, biodiversity field about 15 years ago and was asked to uh, manage some of the international processes. And as we knew we were going to go into the negotiation of that 10-year uh, cycle, Canada argued that we wanted to have a, a process of negotiation that was driven by the parties. And as a lead, I, I worked hard on getting that done. And other parties, all the other signatories to the convention were exactly the same. So we were successful. And at the end, then people were saying, okay, we got it. We get, we need two people to drive that. And, and in the room, all the looks turned to me and I said, okay, well, we'd like you to do it. And, and then uh, on the developing country sides, they identified Francis Agwell as a co-chair. So that's that's how I got to get that what was initially a two-year mandate, and and with COVID, like many many of uh, many people, it uh, ended up being a little bit longer, like um, probably going to be a four-year mandate now. So for for the audience that may not be familiar with exactly what the global biodiversity framework is, can you tell us about your current work as co-chair of that working group? for the, the post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework, and maybe just situate the audience in terms of well, what is that, why is it happening, and, and what are you actually working on? So let's, uh, let's start from the Rio conference where three conventions were decided. And, and your audience will be familiar with the UN Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC. But there was two other conventions decided at that time, the Convention on Biological Diversity and the Convention uh, Against uh, Desertification. 
So I'm working with the Convention on Bi Biological Diversity, which is a convention that sets objectives. And, and it works by 10-year cycle. So there was one cycle with one world plan to, from 2000 to 2010, one from 2010 to 2020, which is called the, the, uh, the HE targets. And basically what we're doing now is we're negotiating a set of goals and targets for the period 2020, 2030. So basically this is a convention that is not about implementing those goals. It sets targets and most of those targets are implemented at the national level by, by uh, national governments or in the case like for Canada, sub-national governments at the, at the provincial level. And, and then basically there is a number of other sister conventions that implement specific targets uh, related to chemicals, related to the trade of endangered species, etc. So uh, basically, what I'm doing at the moment is working with 194 parties to set up some targets that would uh, get us to the result uh, we're looking for, that vision of living in harmony with nature and and basically halting uh, the cause of biodiversity loss. So there's a lot, lot to unpack there. Maybe we'll just start. You've talked about the, the, the Rio output, one of them being Convention on Biodiversity. Can you just explain for the audience what the Convention on Biodiversity is and, and what it what purpose does it serve? So basically, there was a realization at the, the, the Rio meeting that we needed to work uh, together as a, as a global community to address some of the environmental challenge. Uh, on one side, there was this climate change and the Climate Change Convention that is setting up some, some goals for the reduction in, uh, in uh, greenhouse gases in an atmosphere with the aim of addressing the challenge of, uh, of uh, climate change. On the biodiversity side, there is a number of, uh, of cause of biodiversity, and we have a, a scientific body that is also uh, a parallel to the climate structure, which is called the International Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Service, that identify five direct drivers of biodiversity loss. And we can get into those. So, and then a number of indirect uh, drivers of biodiversity loss that are also very relevant. So, but basically, what we're trying to do is uh, setting some action to ensure that not only do we restore biodiversity where it's needed, but that we ensure that uh, it is there for the long term. Practically, what does that mean? It means that we are ensuring that there is food on the table on a global basis. So we're fortunate to live in a country where, where there is very good condition for, for growing a, a number of, uh, of commodities. And we're living in a world where there's going to be an, an increase in, in population. So how are we going to be reconciling all that? How on one side do we going to have a, a nature system that is effective and works, and as well as we have a productive one that enables to meet people's needs. So this is that very complex equation that we, we're going to need to keep where on one side we want to product, we want to protect, we want to have uh, water we can drink, uh, air we can breathe, wetland that protect us from severe weather events. But at the same time, we also want to have a productive nature that provide us with uh, meat where it's needed, uh, with uh, grain like wheat and, and fish, and generally food and shelter and fiber that uh, that are needed for a growing population with, with changing needs. 
And so the Convention on Biodiversity, if I'm understanding, sort of sets the overarching framework for this kind of thinking. And, and is it right to say that the global biodiversity framework is sort of a support structure for the convention? And can you explain how they, how they interact with one another? You're absolutely right. So basically, the convention sets among the, 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 the 20 to 30 article, the way people are working together. And it's, uh, it sets the, the notion that there would be a, a frameworks with a bunch of targets. But it does not, the convention itself does not set those targets. It does not say we're going to be protecting so many uh, percent of our land or we're going to be having so uh, such and such reduction in the uh, plastic uh, debris that are floating. And we, that is set in the, in the framework. So the framework will, will establish some goals over a shorter period of time, which is that 10-year cycle. And it would say, for example, one goal that is been endorsed by by at the federal level and by several provinces and that notion of protecting 30% of our land and, or conserving it so basically uh, making decision on how what type of activity can take place in what part of the land so that is the kind of detail targets that find its way in the framework versus the rules and the way we're going to be organizing ourselves, which is in the convention. The convention will say there will be a conference of the parties every two years. There will be budget. People will work by consensus. We're going to be limiting votes to issues of naming, naming senior officials and things like that. So all the, the way we work together. And I've mentioned post-2020 global biodiversity framework, and we'll, we'll get into that. It's, it's I think, what will be coming forward very soon. Was the previous framework, you said it's on a 10-year cycle, was that a 2010 framework? Correct. So correct. And the, the 2010 to 2020 called as the HE targets after the uh, region in, uh, in Japan where that conference took place. It was in the city of Nagoya. In, in Japan, and that's the Aichi prefectures. And then there was a set of uh, 19 targets at the time. And, and uh, some of your audience may have heard about the targets of 17% of protection on, on land and 10% at sea. Maybe you can tell me, so the Aichi targets, what were the types of targets that they talked about? And then what was the, the journey from there to, to now? The journey has been a difficult one. Let's let's start from the from a very clear message where where the diagnostic is that uh, not a single target was fully achieved, and we were all very careful. It is not about the responsibility of the people that work before us, but they set some very ambitious targets, what we call aspirational targets that were set very far, uh, well ahead of. Um, of uh, the the technical capacity or the capacity of the organization at that point in time, there was also very few targets that were measurable, and and perhaps uh, uh, less attention was paid to the to the notion of uh, performance indicators and system to to measure performance. And another thing is is by and large those targets were seen as the responsibility of uh, the ministries of the environment in each of the countries globally, and the rest of the government and the rest of society was not that much engaged. I think what is very different now is that we're seeing a very clear call for a a framework that is that is open to all entities of our society. 
not only the Ministry of the Environment, but, but the whole government engagement into that. Not only the whole government, but the whole of society, including productive sectors, citizenship, uh, citizens around the world. So we're trying to build a system with a core. At the core, there is mandatory responsibility for states. But around that core, there is room for engagement by many others. We're totally thrilled to see how the financial sector globally has been has been uh, engaged in, into this, and I think we're benefiting a lot about some of the the the, the lesson learned and the, the wave that has been taken on by by climate. Uh, there was kind of uh, more than eighty financial institution that uh, made a pledge recently. Uh, I think those those institution manage eleven trillion dollars worth in asset, and that's that's a huge. Uh, push behind us, and and we've learned the lesson, and we've watched very carefully what happened with the Paris Agreement, which was driven by government, but could not have happened with a very strong push coming from business and private sector finance, and we're witnessing that now. So one of the key difference today is is we're being pulled by a number of actors instead of having to push uh, governments. I, I was on a panel this morning, actually, it was related to the Convention on Biodiversity, and the topic was mainstreaming, uh, mainstreaming of biodiversity. And it kind of sounds like that concept is what, what you're referring to. Can you maybe uh, uh, give, give me your definition of mainstreaming or how you think that relates to the work that uh, the framework is setting out? So I've talked a, a bit earlier about the, the work of the, the science and the, and the five direct drivers of biodiversity loss. But they're kind of direct cause the change in the in the use of uh, of the land, uh, the impact of climate change, the impact of invasive alien species. So those are part of the direct drivers. What is the indirect drivers is mainstreaming. Is how do we factor biodiversity in decision we make? So to take an example from from the public sectors, uh, how does infrastructure investment decisions are made? Do you decide to build what we call grey infrastructure, such as a dam to protect the city from uh, from the impact of uh, severe weather, or do you decide to create green infrastructure, which is a, a, a the green belt around Toronto, or or those kind of wetland that you'll have around cities that are actually providing both a direct benefit in terms of protecting a urban community from the impact of severe weather, but also biodiversity, uh, biodiversity and climate change outcome as well. So that's one example of how you mainstream biodiversity into a decision-making. In private sector, you have many uh, decisions from, so talking about finance, how do you factor into uh, your investment decision the risk associated with uh, biodiversity? If you're looking at investing into uh, agriculture operation in part of the world where it's linked with deforestation, how long will that uh, entity be able to operate in a successful way? Is that going to be five years? Is it going to be 20 years? So having proper uh, description of the risk you're taking is enabling you to have the appropriate decision in terms of uh, how you reflect that uh, that risk in the interest rate you will be um, you will be expecting from that venture practically let me add to that when you look at the 21 targets in the current proposal of the framework there is three targets related to mainstreaming and and one relate to the role of governments in in uh, the decision they made 
that range from, from public accounts and how they reflect nature in public accounts all the way to environmental assessment and financial flows. The second target is more focused on, on the role of business and how they're making their own operational decisions and investment decision. And the third one is around individual choice, like you and me. Uh, when we go to a supermarket, uh, we get a choice to to um, to be able to uh, buy a certain product or another, and and that's decision that has an impact uh, down the line to the way it is produced and and processed and and distributed. And so you mentioned the the twenty one targets. Was that in relation to the uh, twenty ten framework? Then what you've just what you've just described the different roles, uh, or is that what you're discussing in the post twenty twenty framework? That's all about the post and the negotiation taking place. So uh, what I'm what I'm uh, discussing and relating to you is is the last uh, negotiation draft, and that's what one of my role uh, together with Francis in terms of what we do is we prepare those negotiation drafts, trying to reflect the best we can what we heard in the previous uh, negotiation session, and 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 providing some avenues for discussion. So we're gonna get together in person after two years and on the table will be that uh, what we call so-called draft one uh, with those 21 targets and and that would be what uh, the parties negotiators will take on and work from okay so maybe we'll just before we get to the post 2020 uh, work I'll just close off a couple things that you said so one you talked about directed and indirect impacts on biodiversity maybe if you could take a moment to just explain what you mean by that sure so so basically, that's a, a terminology that uh, we've adopted from, from our scientific group called the International Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Service, which is kind of the, the international body that uh, give us the, the initial scientific assessment. And then, and then basically, they have identified five direct drivers of uh, biodiversity loss and then basically, uh, if, if, we, if we look at those, the first one is how we've been changing the way we use land and sea. So if you can imagine that um, across the world, there is, there is uh, many places that have been converted from, from their natural habitat to either place where there is urban dwelling or where there is uh, some level of agriculture or deforestation for forestry. So all kind of different practices some of which provide certain level of biodiversity and, and biodiversity services. So if you have a sustainably managed uh, forestry, like many uh, are in Canada, you do have a benefit. It's not the same one that a, a, a virgin all-growth forest, but it does have one level of value. Others, like deforestation in part of uh, the tropical forest, have very little value. So that's one. The second one is unsustainable exploitation. And I'm sure you heard about some of the uh, fishery practice in part of the world that are, that are leading to a severe problem in terms of uh, some population of marine species. Third one, obviously climate change. And, and the ranking of those values, the three first one, are changing a little bit, uh, whether you're on land or on sea and whether you're talking about them today or in 2050 or 2100. But climate change does have an impact on biodiversity and we know that every day. And then pollution, runoff from uh, pesticides. So the point here is that pesticides are a useful practice for increasing the production 
productivity of agriculture. The problem is the runoff of pesticide that goes outside of the field into the environment. Uh, nutrients, same thing, and then plastic debris. So those are the three top priority uh, pollution, but, but there are others. Invasive alien species is also a, a problem. Uh, we've seen some, some species causing uh, some significant uh, damage, both in terms of terrestrial or, or, veget- or vegetative species, but also marine ones. You heard about zebra mussels. So, so those are the direct cause. The indirect cause is where does that come from? So you're talking about uh, demographics and social cultural factor. Most of the uh, population has been progressing and people are being lifted out of poverty and that's a very good thing. With that come a, an increased demand for meat. Uh, meat is a protein that requires a lot of land in terms of all the land you need to produce the food for for the um, the the species that are used for meat. So how do we are going to be managing that? Are we going to be using kind of a Western style of development or more of an Asian style of development? That's one thing. Economy and technology is also a factor. Both uh, can be a positive one and a negative one. If you look at the role of trade, some of the trade uh, that uh, may not be factoring the full value of the environmental impact may be detrimental. But some of the trade can equally be uh, very positive. I was uh, getting a presentation from a, a, a scientist that does modeling, and he, he's looking at uh, how, where should we locate uh, food production over time. If you, if you eliminate trade and, and you look at a model where you produce food exactly where it's needed, that has a very high impact on, on uh, biodiversity because you need more land than if you were producing it in the most efficient location and you trade, you transport the food from where it's produce, produced to where it's needed. As an example, if, uh, if uh, we're projecting large increase in population in Africa and if you look at uh, sub-Saharan Africa, if you're trying to produce all the food needed in Togo, that's going to be very difficult and require a lot of land. But if you're using production set in better place in the, the southern part of the continent or elsewhere around the earth, in Canada or in South America, that may be a lot more efficient from a land perspective. So that's another one. Institution and, and governance, obviously, as you can imagine, all that is based on, on having sound institution in place where the resources that are provided are directed where they should be and then there is effective ways of uh, making sure that uh, resources are put to good use, which is unfortunately not the place everywhere. And then finally, a big one, conflicts and epidemics. In my work as a, as a wildlife manager in Canada, uh, over the time I had those responsibilities, I think the notion of health and then the health of wildlife as well as human health has grown from being, being a minor concern to uh, something that was eating a good third of my time. So definitely, uh, we're seeing that epidemics, both in terms of the impact of epidemics on species, but also how do we manage biodiversity and wildlife species in terms of protecting human health has become increasingly and increasingly important. Conflicts, obviously, uh, both conflicts have uh, have negative, but also some uh, some positive aspect on biodiversity. Uh, one of the the very best protected conservation area in Korea is the 
demilitarized zones between the north and the south. Uh, that's that's fantastic background. So now we're coming out of the first 10 year global biodiversity framework. There's work on the next 10 year plan, which is called the post 2020 global biodiversity framework. And you've mentioned the meetings that are, are going to be held around that topic. Uh, COP 15 is I think what it's referred to as. So what do you expect to see coming out of COP 15? And in particular, what role do you see for the private sector? So what we want to see at the outs- at, uh, at the end of that is, is that global package. And that global package will have uh, uh, a number of goals that express the vision we have in measurable terms. Then we step those down into measurable terms for 2030, and then we have 21 action targets. Together with that, which will be extremely important, is a package of resources. As you can imagine, it's very easy for developed countries to to come to the table and have a good idea of how much it's going to cost them to implement those and and have a negotiation in terms of what they can afford and and what they can accomplish. It's a different game for developing countries, which are dependent on investments coming either directly from states or from other financial actors. So there is that equation between the ambition we want at the global level and the means that we give ourselves. And certainly is a, a change in the way we, we're going to be managing progress. There is a very clear request to have a stronger and more robust planning, reporting, and review system. So a big difference with this package from the last one, we hope, is the fact that we're going to have a set of agreed performance indicators and agreed way to report on those um, on those elements. So a very transparent way to show if we're making progress or not at the national and global uh, level. Now, the second part of your question is, what does that mean for business? Half of the global economic activities is depending on biodiversity one way or the other. Either, you know, the very easy part is the agri-food system, and, and we're fortunate to have organizations in Canada that have been very active in, in, this, in this field. Uh, Loblaws is one, McCain is another one, so, and then there is others. And I think what business uh, wants is they want to see some very clear targets in terms of protecting and ensuring that asset that is nature is available for the long term. If we're starting to lose uh, the, the, this, this tool that we're using, this asset we have, which is nature, and the, that we use to produce food and fiber, that's going to be a, a very big problem in terms of sustainability of those business models. So that's one thing. The second thing is, is you want to have some predictability in the regime that surrounds the way we use biodiversity. What are the rules? What's the rule books? One thing we're going to try to do better than for the climate change is to try to work those rules in parallel with the negotiation of the goals. So you should have, by the time we get to China, a, probably a lot more visibility on, on how that's, that's going to be done. And then finally, you're going to have probably more clarity in how you're going to be able to make decision in terms of investment in operation, uh, in terms of maximizing your, your profitability. So what, uh, what I heard very clearly from, from business at the global level is, 
is an interest in making sure they understand the environment into which they're operating. I have not heard once opposition to uh, the type of measures we're taking. What I heard is, is a very clear message about what is going to be the process to get from the current system to the system we're going to, what are the measures, what are the rules, and how can we adapt? So a very clear and, and reasonable plan. If you allow me to take an example, I'll, I'll again take the, 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 the example of the agri-food system. So we have a system today that is working well. We all get fed. Some people may not be getting all the nutrition they need, but at, by and large, we have accommodated a very significant increase in, in, uh, in the well-being of people and hundreds of millions of people getting out of poverty and being fed. What we're talking about is, is moving to a system with a lot less risk. The current system has an inherent level of risk. Uh, I was talking with colleagues in Europe, and they were telling me that sugar beets is no longer going to be viable in France in the next 30 years, that uh, growing wheat in the southern half of Europe is not going to be profitable in the next uh, 50 to 100 years. So major change in the operation. So... There is a need to move the system in a place where it is more predictable and you get better assurance of what's coming up. At the same time, we need, we're going to need to, to be able to feed half a billion people in addition to what we have today and do that in a way that is sustainable. So it is a massive change and it is a change in which business decision has a central position. We in government can make nice plans but if those plans are not realistic for you in the private industry and you're not ready and calling for those plans, they're only plans. And I'm, I don't think any of us is interested in plans. We're interested in actual change and making sure we're getting to a better future. So I see a model where my vision and my hope is that when we get to the end of that COP in, in, uh, in China, on the stage will not only be minister clapping, but I would like to have business representative, NGO representative, indigenous people representative clapping together and being engaged in the solution. That would be wonderful. And you've mentioned that there's going to be goals and targets um, set out in, in the post-2020 framework. This is always an area that I think can be quite helpful if there's a standardized way of thinking about what objectives we should all be aiming for, what represents good performance, you know, what's lagging performance. When you're talking about goals and targets, what do you expect will come out of this process? How granular will it be? And, and again, maybe just with a, a pivot to the private sector, what would it mean for biodiversity, uh, sustainability objectives with for companies? So that's a question that comes very often. And, and I think we're often asked, What's the 1.5 degree for biodiversity? That's a question that often comes. That's a very difficult question. There is major difference between biodiversity and climate. And one is that biodiversity encompasses many different characteristics, not one. It's very difficult to find a, a single metric. What my thinking is, in, is that out of the 21 targets, uh, a limited number, maybe five or six, perhaps seven, will emerge as the one that resonates the most with people and with business. It was very interesting to see a few months ago, Walmart 
coming out with a, a commitment and a pledge uh, around restoration, protection, and conservation of habitat expressed in, in actors. So coming back to that targets of 30% uh, of our land and sea protected and conserved, you can convert that relatively easily into an absolute number. And, and you can associate with that a, a target around restoration of degraded habitat. And, and I think those are, will be uh, very uh, important targets and very visible one. You may have heard about nature-based solution, which is how uh, biodiversity and nature in general can help with uh, greenhouse gas um, mitigation and with adaptation. And there is often the notion that between 30 and 39% in today's condition, of the expected uh, targets for greenhouse gas amid, uh, mitigation can be reached through nature-based solution. So we're proposing in that draft one that uh, these be expressed into a, an absolute term. So it converts to 10 gigatons of carbon of CO2 emission equivalent. And that could be a very uh, useful goal for business to be referring to. So if a business have a, a greenhouse gas uh, emission reduction and is able to translate that into a certain amount of carbon storage in the ground, if uh, major farm operators may be able to do that. So you can see kind of a crosswalk between the two there. On the pollution side, uh, reducing nutrients and, and, and reducing nutrient loss and reducing uh, pesticide loss, Maybe objective that uh, that uh, private sector may may take on, and and perhaps if we looked at the indirect drivers, reducing waste. Uh, I've I've read some some really interesting statistics and metrics coming from the like of McCain in terms of uh, the the percentage of uh, waste and reducing the percentage of waste. They're well below five uh, percent of the the tonnage coming in versus coming what is coming out on the other end in terms of uh, product for sale. So I can imagine that among the 21 targets, there would be five or six that uh, gather the attention of the public and would provide a uh, very useful way to show the progress, show the commitment, and be able to, to report. Yeah, the linkage between climate change and biodiversity, I think, is critical because of the focus on climate and, you know, as you said, there's sometimes a clearer roadmap as to how either government or the private sector should be responding. Biodiversity may be less so, but a lot of the, the template of the, of the approach to climate could be used in the biodiversity context. And I think you've laid that out well. There's another activity that's happening right now that is also reminiscent of uh, the approach to climate change the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosure, which is the biodiversity counterpart to the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. Uh, I'm wondering if you have any relationship to that work. Uh, are you uh, following it? And do you have anything that you would like to see coming out of that process? So so definitely, uh, I was thrilled to see the TNFD uh, uh, starting. It is co-led by, by the Executive Secretary of the Convention on Biological Diversity, Elizabeth Mrema, and I am interacting uh, very regularly with a number of members of that uh, task force, Simon Zadek, etc. So once again, I think, I think we're benefiting a lot of the experience and of the interest and, and, and learning that uh, the financial sector has done 
uh, with climate. What we're looking for from the, the TNFD is to provide us with this, uh, this framework for assessing and measuring the risk associated with biodiversity and then in turn enabling the financial sector to take the, the best decision. And that's another way where I think there is room for coordination and coherence between the system. People in the financial, in the financial market are making everyday decisions. And, and they want to have a, a, the easiest possible way of characterizing risk. So we should be trying to provide them with an integrated metrics of risk that would uh, both factor climate and uh, biodiversity at the same time. So we're not there yet. We got to walk before we run. But definitely uh, looking forward to the progress uh, in terms of the, the metrics and to see how we can integrate further and, and make life as easy as possible for the financial markets to reflect the, the biodiversity risk and, and help us uh, help themselves. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to watch what comes out of it. And BMO is participating in an advisory forum with, with TNFD and we're, we're proud to do so. So we're, we're keen to, um, to see how this could affect both for the private sector, but also even for, for government and regulators to understand a framework for integrating biodiversity into strategy, governance, risk management, target setting, etc. How would you characterize the importance of biodiversity protections for countries uh, and the you know the, the potential impacts if if it's not adequately managed? I've heard a lot recently about the role of biodiversity in resilience and you know the, the role that it, it plays, ecosystem services you've mentioned. But just from, from your take, all of the work that you've done, how important is this for for nations around the world, and and what are the implications if we're not successful in the next ten years? So let me start by by a story, an example. I don't know if if your your audience would know, but the the water people drink in New York City is not filtered. It's coming straight from uh, an ecosystem called the Catskill Mountains. And the way they've been managing that is they have agreement with uh, the farming community around the reservoirs in the, and there is agreement in the way they're going to be managing their farming. So there is no leaching out of nutrients or pesticide in that water. Can you imagine the cost of uh, building from scratch a water treatment plant that would be replacing that natural ecosystem? That would be huge. So uh, that's one example of how we're we're not accounting in our in our in our system very well the uh, the the service given to us by by nature, and and that goes for for uh, uh, a lot of other service like if you increase urbanization and uh, you decrease the capacity of your land to absorb excess rain and we're moving into a a, a, a period where we're going to see increasing number of uh, torrential rains events then you have to build bigger uh, rain sewer system and that's uh, and retrofitting that into our urban environment is extremely costly as you can factor that into the decision making you're in the process of uh, making efficient decisions so Countries that will take it into account all those variables at the national level in terms of how they do land planning, but also at the, the provincial and regional and, and local level will be ahead. So it, it is just 
smart business and smart decision making to look after those systems that help you uh, uh, in your everyday life and, and seeing how you can maximize the use of those systems. And, and often what you get in addition to that is, is that wetland that you've been uh, keeping in terms of protecting you from, from floods is, is an enjoyable place where, where you can go fishing, where wildlife is, uh, is being abundant and, and that provide a lot of recreational values. So often multiple benefits, some of which you can actually associate and discount with relatively good metrics, others that are more global and and that you enjoy anyway. Well, this has been a, a great and far-reaching discussion, Basile. Um, as a final thought, what would you say are the key challenges remaining when it comes to biodiversity and managing biodiversity loss globally? And what final thoughts would you like to leave for the audience on that topic and how hopeful are you for the future? It's fascinating to see how some financial decisions have been made. We've seen an announcement by the Jeff Bezos and of this world coming up with five billion US dollar to protect and conserve land. That's that's a a very significant investment that is not even coming from government; that is coming from uh, from uh, philanthropy. We've seen also some uh, very interesting uh, investment coming from countries. UK putting $3 billion, European Commission $1 billion. So I am seeing a wave of investment that signal me that uh, we are uh, getting to the point where we, we can get into those heavy discussions. So I am hopeful. What we need, and, and I'm fairly confident that the um, land use issues, that famous 30 by 30, will, re- will gather quite a bit of support and, and will be relatively easy to negotiate. What I would like to leave as a message is that this, you know, addressing one of the causes of biodiversity loss is good, but it's not enough. We need to have a balanced approach across everything. It's like a, if you have five leaks in the boat, if you plug one leak, it is not good enough. You need to plug the, the four others. So that's one of the, the, the message and, and uh, a message that is specific to the, the financial community is that um, tell us what you need. Tell us what kind of language is useful to you. We need your help in terms of uh, you making the the decision that help us, but uh, we're happy to help you also. And in order to do that, we need to understand your operating condition and how we can put language in that frameworks that help you uh, get further down the road where we are together. Great. Thank you so much, Basile, for your time today. And uh, we look forward to watching what comes out of the, the work of COP15 and staying engaged on this topic. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week.
The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.